Chapter twenty three of the Apostle of Alaska The Story of William Duncan of Metlakatla by John W. Arctander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. Temporal Advancement God well knew what he did when he placed a practical businessman as missionary among these Indians. When a Tsimshean became a Christian, he became poorer than when he was a heathen. This statement may seem absurd, but its correctness is easily proven. To become a Christian does not make him a smarter hunter or a more skillful fisherman. In other words, if no new industry is provided for him, his income remains the same as before. Not so with his expenses. When a heathen, his old dirty blanket was sufficient both for a suit and for bedclothes. His wife and children, most of the time, trotted around only half-clothed. When he became a Christian, he needed a decent suit to go to church in, and another for his daily work. His wife required a civilized dress, and the children also must be clothed and shod. This meant to him quite an additional outlay. Therefore, it was absolutely necessary not only to convert him to Christianity, but also to open to him new sources of industry, new means of earning wages, with which to meet the extra demands on his purse. This Mr. Duncan gradually set about doing. To begin with, he paid the Indians wages for their work on his house and on the church. Then they were paid for all work on the public improvements, such as the roads which were being built, the drainage necessary, and later on the building of a public guest house or market house where visiting Indians could be housed while staying at the village for trading purposes. One hundred garden plots were also laid out on a neighboring island, where some of the old villages had been located and distributed among the villagers, who thus were enabled to raise all the potatoes they needed for household use. They were also encouraged in preparing salted and smoked salmon, ulicon grease, and dried berries for exportation to Victoria, and Mr. Duncan made it a point to exhort them to extraordinary efforts to secure furs of all kinds. After a while, he started a soap factory among them, at which cheap soap was manufactured from the Ulicon grease, an industry which gave steady employment to several people. But in order to get rid of their articles for export, and to obtain the necessities of life outside of what the ocean furnished them, the Metlakatla Indians were either obliged to go to Fort Simpson to trade with the company's agents, or encourage the visits of trading schooners, who were at the time a visitation indeed of the coast. To go to Fort Simpson exposed them to the very temptations from which Mr. Duncan wanted to remove them when he took them to Metlakatla. Several of his people, to his sorrow, while going to the fort to trade, had fallen victims to the temptations there so freely thrust upon them. On the other hand, the trading schooners were practically nothing but grog shops, and their visits to the settlements of the Indians were only too frequently marked by murder and the very maddest of riots. Mr. Duncan, therefore, soon after coming to Metlakatla, made an earnest effort to have the Hudson's Bay Company open a store in the village, where the Indians could exchange their furs and other produce, and obtain in return, therefore, the necessities of life, without being compelled to go to the heathen hell-hole at the fort. The only conditions he imposed were that no intoxicating liquors should be sold or kept on the premises, 
that only a reasonable profit should be exacted and that the agent in charge should be a decent man who would respect the sabbath day and not in any manner throw any hindrance in the way of the christian and civilizing work carried on in the village the directors of the company who did not much fancy the removal of all these indians from the villages around the fort refused to grant this reasonable request and what was more when mr duncan attempted to induce one after the other of the christian merchants in victoria to establish a branch store at metlakahtla the hudson's bay company which at the time was just about almighty on the coast insinuated to each of them that he might not find it to his interest to take up this enterprise they therefore one after the other backed out after first having taken very kindly to the proposition but mr duncan was not a man to be daunted he knew something about business himself and what he did not know he could learn and he concluded to open a store on his own account at metlakahtla he could buy furs and other articles from the indians himself and ship them to victoria and in return sell them what they needed by being exceedingly careful in saving he had been able to put away quite a portion of his meagre salary of five hundred dollars per annum which the society paid him while at the fort and this small capital would now enable him to purchase and pay cash for a small stock of goods such as the indians needed but he soon ascertained that capital was not the only thing which he required he was nearly six hundred miles from victoria his exports had to be shipped out and the goods that he needed had to be shipped in and the hudson's bay company steamers were the only means of communication along the coast he was hardly prepared for their decision that their steamers would not be allowed to carry any freight either to or from metlakahtla but when it came he made up his mind that a little thing like that was not going to balk his plans he determined to buy and fit out his own schooner and have the indians run it up and down the coast it would give more of them a living that was all he laid the matter before the governor in council who agreed to advance him from the public funds five hundred dollars the schooner could be bought for fifteen hundred dollars mr duncan who wanted the indians to feel personally interested in the enterprise persuaded them to take shares of five dollars each to the amount of four hundred dollars all told and the balance he advanced from his own private funds soon the carolina with a native master and crew was running up and down the coast bringing goods for the store up to metlakahtla and furs by the ton down for as soon as the other indians living outside of metlakahtla found out that their martin skins which at the company store had only been worth twenty-five cents at mr duncan's establishment brought their possessor from three to four dollars mink skins instead of two cents fifty or seventy-five cents and sea otters instead of ten to twelve dollars one hundred dollars they soon found it to their interest to transfer their trade to the new store and the carolina now carried a full cargo both ways and was kept busy running all the time when at the close of the year mr duncan was able to pay each of the indian stockholders five dollars per share in dividend they did not like to take the money at first as they thought they would have to give up their interest in the schooner but when he explained to them that they still retained their interest just as before as part owners and that the sum which he paid them only represented what they had earned on their investment they almost died after that they wanted to rechristen the schooner ha a male slave for they said 
he does all the work and we get all the profits the indians evidently do not agree with us as to the gender of a ship but it stands to reason that the hudson's bay company which at that time was the standard oil company of the northwest coast not only to say of all canada and used to having things pretty much its own way would not stand for a man like mr duncan a poor man and a mere missionary at that interfering in this manner with their monopoly without trying to make him feel its power an order was given to overbid him on furs and to undersell him on goods which the indians wanted he would soon find that it did not pay to play with a concern like theirs they could well afford to run their business at fort simpson for say a year even at an absolute loss if necessary in order to crush this inconvenient and obstreperous rival but the company did not reckon with the kind of man mr duncan was when he heard of these plans of theirs he went to the company's representative and said to him i have heard what the company has concluded to do and i am perfectly willing to have you carry out its orders i do not fear you and i will tell you frankly how i will act in the matter so that you may take your measures accordingly my goods are all paid for and it will not break me if i do not sell a pound or an ell of my stuff the moment i find that you raise the price of furs above a fair living price or lower the price of goods below a fair profit i will turn the key in the lock of the door of my store and not sell another article when the indians come for goods or with furs i will send them to you and tell them that they can make a good profit by coming to the fort but mind you you will have to keep on with your plan and your prices for the moment i learn that you have come down on the furs or have come up on your store goods i will open the door of my store again and tell the indians to come and trade with me once more that i can do as well as you with them and considering the way they feel towards you i think i will be able to get them to do just about as i tell them now honestly what do you think about my plan captain lewis evidently did not think much of it for the hudson's bay company's order was revoked and for the first time in its history this purse-proud and powerful company had to acknowledge a defeat in its great trade of the northwest territory and what was more not only did the directors conclude it was good policy not to balk mr duncan in his enterprise but within another six months they notified him that they would be able to ship his freight on their steamers from that time on if he desired to sell his schooner this he did obtaining a cash price of one thousand dollars for it of course he paid back to the provincial government its proportionate part of the proceeds of the sale price undoubtedly a surprise for the government which naturally never had expected to get back a cent of any money advanced to a missionary never was a victory more complete the profits of the trading establishment at metlakahtla were largely applied to public improvements of all sorts and to such new enterprises as promised to give employment to the people at their own home very soon a blacksmith's shop was started then a carpenter's shop followed at an early day mr duncan had told the indians that he would teach them how to make water saw lumber for them when he first came to metlakahtla he had in mind a fine water power not far away when the water wheel had been put in position and a sawmill started one of the indians came to him and said i want to die now why do you want to die oh i want to go and meet our old chiefs and tell them the wonder i have seen that you have made water saw wood they never heard or saw anything like that while they lived and i want to be the first one to tell them 
he sat down on his haunches a whole day by the mill and seemed to take in everything intensely strange enough he did die a short time afterwards some years later mr duncan discovering some suitable clay nearby started a brick kiln which soon made all the bricks they needed for their chimneys and considerable for export to other camps after he had been at metlakatla a short time mr duncan concluded that it would be well to give the prominent indians some share in the government of both the village and the church he therefore appointed a number of natives to be members of a village council to which council together with the constables whose number now had been increased to twenty he gave an advisory voice in relation to all village affairs of course mr duncan naturally reserved to himself the final decision of all matters while he with great urbanity listened to all they had to say on any question and generally followed their advice he also appointed such a number as he from time to time deemed proper to act as elders of the church after a while he thought he would try the experiment of having them elect their own village council and elders his first experience convinced him that he could fully trust them an elder was to be elected he called into the council chamber the leading men of the village and told them that as they knew their fellows in daily life and went away from the village he had made up his mind to have them vote for whom they thought would be the best man for elder he announced the mode of election to be as follows he would go into the next room then one of them at a time could come in there and tell him whom he wanted to vote for the first man in voted for silas the next one also he was very much surprised to see that silas had a great majority of the votes cast he himself had never thought much of silas he was a quiet reserved man who never had much to say or testify when the election was over he told them of his surprise at silas receiving such a vote and asked them how it came about they said you don't know him he is so quiet here but when he is out at the fishing stations on sundays he always gathers the people around him and prays and speaks and exhorts and does a great work greater than any one of us and thus mr duncan found it to be silas proved to be one of his best men and still he had never suspected it later on mr duncan got up another mode of election at that stage very few of the electors could write so they could of course not vote by ballot he wanted to get a perfectly free expression and let every man have a secret vote this is how he arranged it mr duncan nominated a certain candidate every elector was furnished with a button then mr duncan took a deep hat and passed it in front of them all slowly when the hat was before him the elector was instructed to put his hand in in which he held the button way down to the bottom of the hat if he had any objection to the man he proposed he should drop the button in the hat if he was favorable he should withdraw the hand retaining the button in it once a certain man had been proposed for elder when the ballot was closed there was one button in the hat mr duncan told them that while one button would not defeat an election he wanted to know if there really was an objection or whether the button had been dropped by mistake so he said i will pass the hat again everybody put his hand in again if the one who dropped his button let it fall by mistake he can pick it up again when he puts his hand in the hat went around again the button was still there there evidently was no mistake mr duncan had never heard aught against the man nominated and was anxious to know whether the black ball was due to spite so he said 
i don't want to declare this man elected now let the man who dropped this button come to my office tomorrow sometime and tell me why he did so the next morning very early before he was out of bed even he noticed a man walking back and forth in front of his office he opened the door well what do you want i am the one who dropped that button ah you had good grounds for it i suppose i will tell you and you can judge for yourself he and i were at the store together one day he paid for some goods by mistake he got one dollar too much in change after a while he showed it to me and asked me if he should give it back to the storekeeper or keep it i told him to give it back and he did but i thought that a man who did not know enough to be honest was not fit to be an elder of the church that man was not declared elected though there was only one button against him later on this mode of election proved too slow another course was then adopted by which ten men could be elected in half an hour the electors were stood up with their faces to the wall all round the room and told not to look around when a man had been nominated any person who was opposed to him was told to put his closed fist behind his back if favorable the open hand sometimes mr duncan who of course was the sole judge of the election saw a closed fist move very violently behind some back ten or more closed fists defeated the candidate nominated at the present time when all the electors are able to read and write the election is by ballot every new year's day it is perhaps unnecessary to say inasmuch as mr duncan is a confirmed bachelor that there is no female suffrage and never has been any at metlakahtla what is more remarkable perhaps is that there are no suffragettes either end of chapter twenty three